Welcome to Blockchain Versus, a podcast specifically intended to dive deep into the technology that we call blockchain and how it has the massive potential to disrupt a number of different industries and literally change the face of how we do business every single day. We're also going to be bringing on some of the most influential people in the blockchain and cryptocurrency space to talk about projects that they're working on and how this technology truly has the opportunity to disrupt the world as we know it. This is Blockchain Versus. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another awesome episode of Blockchain Versus. Today, really excited. We have an incredible guest, uh, but I'll start off by saying, you know, always joined by my handy co-host, Miss Christina Bruhan. Christina, how are you doing today? Doing pretty good. Hello, everyone. Cool. So today, uh, we're going to attack a few different things. I mean, there's so much this gentleman brings to the table in terms of his knowledge base. Uh, we've known him for quite a while now, um, following everything that he's doing in the space. Mr. Christian K. Meyer. Christian, how are you? Couldn't be better. How are you, Jeremy? Doing well, doing well. Thank you so much for joining the podcast, Blockchain Versus. Um, I think uh, we can really just dive right into it. There's so much content that I want to get through today. So why don't we start by just telling you a little bit about your background, how you got into the space, and kind of just transition into what gets you most excited about what you see today as far as the landscape. Yeah, so maybe just real quick. I was a programmer for a brief period of time in the mid-80s, which doesn't really mean much. My first computer was an Atari 520 ST without a hard drive. So I learned basic coding and did an internship at Siemens Nixdorf. And I decided at the time this was really bad for my health, specifically for my eyes. I would ride my bicycle home and see stars in the middle of the day. Um, so I ended up getting a law degree instead of becoming a uh, programmer. And then because of the timing, um, became general counsel for what was then one of the first internet service providers in, in Europe. And we just got super lucky selling the company at the height of the dot-com, merging it with um, what's now the largest internet service provider in Europe. So after being a lawyer for about three years, I retired from the law, moved to Southern California to joined a venture firm in technology and did this for a couple of years and then had the urge to become operational, unfortunately, and sold that company in 2000, uh, 2008, which was Yelp before Yelp. And shortly after, we joined um, the blockchain space here and uh, founded the Ethereum meetups throughout Orange County and started investing in that space and supporting the technology in general. No, that's great. Well, thanks so much for uh, diving in a little bit about your background. I think, uh, you know, there's a lot more to unpack there. I know that you guys are really heavy, especially your company, Sustainy Capital, based out of Newport Beach, uh, into non-fungible tokens and different things like that in the gaming industry. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience there. I know we've spoken to Brock several times in the past, and that's, you know, obviously an industry that he comes from as well. So I'm sure there's a lot of overlap, and you guys, I'm assuming, have spoken, considering you guys have probably shared the stage many times at conferences uh, as prominent people in the space. But talk a little bit about non-fungible tokens, how it affects the gaming space, and how the gaming community was really the first to kind of understand and adopt digital currencies because it's something that they're very used to. Yeah, so incidentally, gaming was sort of what brought me to Southern California initially. We bought a team out of EverQuest in 2000. And so we were um, narrowly focused on multi-massive online player games and to some degree on voice of IP technologies. And so for me, um, I understand blockchains as the building blocks for 
um, the creation of new um, protocols and they're specifically value transfer protocols. So we, we're using a fairly scientific approach to our investments, which means we're formulating an investment thesis paper and then going out um, getting peer review on the, those ideas. So right now, broadly, we follow three uh, three kind of papers. One is around the topic of money over IP, um, and they are specifically things like remittance and smart wallet system, exchange technologies to some degree, and then we focus narrowly on regulation technologies, swag tech, and oftentimes people already call this security tokens, but they are years out if you understand the technology. And then um, lastly, we focus on identity and um, they are specifically anything that has to do with the implementation of non-fungibles as well as they pertain to the other um, sectors that we are looking at. So for me, the advantage specifically looking at gaming is that it can test protocols on a sidechain and then see how much utility they provide to these systems and then um, take them out to the next level. Because uh, I think most people uh, keep ignoring the fact that we are still at the very beginning of this particular technology paradigm. It's mostly a paradigm, not as much as it is a technology. Whenever people refer to blockchain technology, that really just refers to a specific type of encryption, which is very useful, but not at all, obviously, the overriding paradigm that this technology provides, which is mostly the decentralization component, which allows you to create those interesting characteristics that we now see. So mainly that of a digital barrier instrument but so to circle back to your specific question so what, the reason why we like um, nft standards specifically because they are the, uh, the actual first protocol advancement that extends um the non-fund uh, the the fungibles which they are the simplest if you will um protocols uh, so the typical one would be erc20 on Ethereum, but then ERC721 is the NFT implementation on Ethereum um, towards what we already had. So you can create many more interesting things outside of just CryptoKitties. Yes, it has a lot of utility, <laughs> right, that you can can own your in-game character. But if you start analyzing that, then you'll see that most of um, the functions that you have in quote-unquote with CryptoKitties as far as breeding and so forth is concerned, they're all happen happening on the sidechain. Really only, the only thing that's happening on mainnet is the recording of um, the transfer of ownership of that particular entry. And that's about it at the moment. So we also have a partnership with Engine to the extent that we want to see that evolve. So engine, um, the engine team created this 1155 standard, which I would call the limited item standard. So you can create any um, number of items, i.e. 99 of one particular in-game item that you're trying to sell. But um, at the end of the day, I think it's mostly interesting in terms of what you can do for the real world. So we already mapped out a couple of scenarios that we introduced at some of our meetups to get people to think because um, once you create something on the blockchain, uh, you have way more opportunities to interact with any items in the real world. So we made this very simple example for a wine sale. You can imagine that you have a winery that produces, let's say, 100,000 bottles every year on average, that you could um, introduce an NFT for every single bottle and then sell those NFTs before these wine, uh, uh, this particular wine is ever put into the bottle. But you can already create that market and then associate something simple like a near-frequency chip to every bottle 
and start tracking um, that particular real-world item from its inception being born on the blockchain over to handing it off on the supply chain implementation, i.e. NIOTA, to track whether or not it's always being maintained at a certain temperature to where at the end of the day you can see this item being handed over to a DAP, i.e. an USIO DAP on your cell phone to where you can see the provenance of this item and see, for example, oh, this item has been created on the blockchain this day, the bottle has been filled then, was always maintained in a proper fashion, and there's one out of 5,000 still available, and then potentially can also immediately create a resale market. Anyway, so um, we're very forward-looking in the sense of where this protocol can take you and that's part of the excitement outside of the fact that we're also financing a few games in that space right now that we find very interesting that's really cool so interesting um you know approach on this which is i personally believe that the reason why the gaming community understands and is adopting this technology once again because they get it because they're used to utilizing virtual currencies but the reason why virtual currencies work in that particular scenario in my opinion is because there's an actual real-time need to be able to do something right so take these games in in uh, you know for instance that you're building out these cities and you need something because um, you need these digital tokens or these coins or diamonds whatever it is to be able to uh, fast forward on your development of your city or to be able to uh, get an extra life and there's always some sort of time constraint around it which is why i think the economics work really really well Right. So how can we start to apply things like that? Because I think that's where we're going to get to, like in the real world. And you're talking about real world application of this technology. But I think for a killer app to survive, at least initially, until this becomes very commonplace and it becomes like an underlying protocol, like using the Internet where people don't know they're using it. But until we get to that time, I feel like we're going to need to have it in some sort of way to where it adds benefit in real time to help us move something forward. How can we utilize it in the same vein as they do in gaming in real-world applications so people come into the space and want to and have an actual need to adopt and utilize cryptocurrencies? Well, let me pull back So, um, because I, I actually don't find a lot of utility in the term cryptocurrencies. And I keep telling people that the number of cryptocurrencies we need is probably anywhere between zero and one because... Uh, here's the thing. Uh, we always revert back to a very old definition of money and oftentimes that's conflated with the term currency. A lot of people in everyday language use the term currency and money synonymous whereas they are not. So money in a simple fashion is just language. Currency is just technology. So let me unpack this. If you're looking at your digital wallet right now, you'll see your Bitcoin holdings, your Ethereum holding, uh, Ether holdings and um, whatever other altcoins you might hold and what you'll always see is the translation into your language of trade so in your case it's probably the US dollar because um, in my presentations I always use this example of you'll never see a Bitcoin price on a banana because that just adds friction you have to translate this into a language <laughs> of trade you understand in your case it might be the US dollar right. if I'm looking at the banana in a European context it's a euro and then in Chinese context it might be the Chinese yuan and so forth right so money is just language so moving on to currency currencies are systems of money so and there we introduce this concept of cryptocurrencies to me those are just stepping stones to actually completing the protocol 
And the protocol at the end of the day, just like voice over IP, SMTB, et cetera, doesn't matter to anybody, right? When you pick up the phone and you're making a phone call, you don't care if it's TDMA, CDMA, or SIP. You're just caring that you hear someone else's voice on the other end that you can understand. Same with the exchange of value. If you're going to any other country and you're talking, quote unquote, to a point of sale terminal, the point of sale terminal might expect euro and whatever you want to send it, you will probably translate it for yourself into US dollars so you make sure that you understand what you're paying because otherwise you don't understand it. If you're seeing a $12,000 uh, 12,000 pesos sticker on something in your head or on your phone, you're translating this. Well, we can move this to the protocol level and we will. And a lot of people have been throwing this term around money over IP, which is a great term, but a lot of people have just not understood how to actually implement this. And so how this will be implemented, we're seeing it here and there, is that we're moving the exchange, the system of money to the protocol level. So the practical effect that this will have is that all the quote-unquote shit coins will be pushed to the edges. And those are mostly what we consider fiat currencies right now. Because think about it this way, would you ever leave a million dollars in your checking account for any length of time? No, right? Because it's losing value, it's inflationary. But you shouldn't actually do this with a dollar. So our expectation is for the future we'll have smart wallet systems that only move into legacy fiat currencies. And they're not currencies, by the way, but they're not even money. They're just debt systems. But so the, these old DLT type systems will only be interfaced with if and when you still need to communicate with the legacy system. So the, the legacy banking systems or legacy vendors that still want to see that. But other than that, you don't care. And you don't need a stable coin for that. You don't need Bitcoin for that. You don't need anything for that because at the end of the day, you actually don't want anything in your currency technology that's volatile or inflationary, right? So to that extent, I expect that in the future, no one at any for any length of time will hold the medium um, of exchange for more than a nanosecond in order to satisfy some counterparty's needs. And otherwise, you will leave that value into something that's actually stable and more likely is making you money. I would agree. I think that there's um, a lot that we can do to be smart about our wealth management. Um, and Christian, you know a lot about wealth management. You also know a lot about fintech and you know a lot about, you know, kind of this concept of needing to bank the unbanked. I find it just kind of an interesting synergy that we might be able to solve like the scarcity issue of wealth around the world with a scarcity issue token and, and a limited supply that goes up in value. So can you explain some of those, con like some of those concepts to someone who might not be as familiar? Um, well, I'm not quite sure where you're going with that, but let me take a stab at it anyway. So um, right now we're putting value on a lot of things that we shouldn't be putting value on, i.e. Um, there's a lot of intermediaries that don't necessarily enhance the productivity of our output, right? And that's true mostly for the developed nations uh, and not so much for the developing nations. So the developing nations have other needs. And what irks me the most about that is we're always trying to kind of um, uh, 
inflict uh, what we see as things like financial inclusion and so forth on the developing nations. And I see this every day where like um, a representative of a bank will, will uh, force his idea or her idea on uh, someone in sub-Saharan Africa that needs a quote-unquote bank account. I think um, if you live in one of those developing nations, it's highly unlikely that you will ever have a bank account. It's it's the same scenario if you're talking to someone who is typing on his um, smartphone in sub-Saharan Africa to sell his goats and you offer him uh, a rotary phone. Because at this point in time, uh, he has been using a smartphone for quite some time and won't have the need for a rotary phone. At the same point in time, he's been using an electronic wallet to facilitate whatever his business is and will never see the need for a bank account. That's probably also true uh, for any teenager growing up in the developed nation. So the point here is that um, the developing uh, the developed nations have a lot of technology debt to deal with and a lot of these legacy systems have a lot of cloud in our governmental systems and there the largest problem is not so much the technology as it is the indoctrination of the mindset so what i what i mean by that is that uh, governments, uh, they, they are not entities, right? They, they don't have the right to exist on the, for their own sakes. They are systems of society. And a lot of these systems are simply better served through technology, i.e., to me, it seems very doubtful that a government should have ever had a hand in the creation of money, right? So uh, whenever that experiment was started throughout history, uh, those experiments failed. We, we have 156 experiments of fiat money. They all failed. The average lifetime of a fiat currency was less than 25 years because the incentive mechanisms are obviously not aligned with the population at large. If I give you the right to print money, I keep doing that <laughs> and, until there's no more to be printed because people don't want to take it. Christian, what are these values that we need to make people aware of? They're obviously not aware in order to drive social change. What are those things that you feel are rights to people that they may not even understand based on the current infrastructure of the planet? Oh, that's a very complicated question um, that's hard to answer directly. But uh, so... So the the most interesting advancement that the Bitcoin white paper introduced is that of a DAO, that of a decentralized autonomous organization. And that could potentially take care of a lot of those issues. So what it did, it opened up the opportunity to align the interest of every stakeholder. This is something that we don't have right now, and that creates a lot of externalities. So more specifically, our I, um, idea of what we call for-profit organizations. I mean, a couple of people have pointed this out, but they are monstrous in their original setup because they don't account for most of their externalities and they optimize for the wrong thing. And now we we see this over and over again, have more public awareness for that, i.e. the harvesting of time and attention through data brokers such as Google and Facebook. And I wrote about this 10 years ago and no one found this important. And today it's, uh, it's, it's sort of common knowledge. But I think it needs to go further. I think we need to penalize 
normalize this type of behavior to the extent that it's actually making everybody's life worse. Because advertising doesn't make your or my life better, and nor does it foster um, the larger well-being of the planet or the people who inhabit it, right? It's skewing it towards a quote-unquote for-profit motive that doesn't care if in, in that particular context we're polluting the environment. So a little non-secret, if you're running uh, a search on Google, most of the energy that's being spent is spent on analyzing who you are and fitting uh, the result with uh, the most advantageous um, AdWords result that you would might be clicking on and make money for that advertising company named Google because Google is not a search engine. We don't have a search engine. So you could power a light bulb for an hour with every single search that you're doing. And that's just one of the horrendous examples that we're allowing to exist outside of the fact that we created a digital landfill of the, uh, of, of the World Wide Web by allowing companies such as Google and Facebook to organize the world's quote-unquote knowledge. But there is no knowledge. You're not actually doing any searching, right? You're running a query mostly against the advertising index. And so... Um, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but that's kind of how my mind works, how you need to address these problems, because at the end of the day, it will always start with disseminating the correct information rather than allowing um, propaganda to take hold. Because right now you can Google, quote unquote, anything and find your particular opinion confirmed. And there might be something... Uh, outrageous such as the world is flat or something more nuanced that you hold to be true but that uh, scientific research has disproven for decades at this point in time such as the topic of climate research there's like two people that can uh, well they call themselves researchers that, that support this notion that um, the climate change is not man-made right but there's a public discussion over this like this was something that was up for debate it's not up, up for debate Right. Right. I would love to get a consensus uh, blockchain, like just just be allow people to say, yes, I believe in this or no, I don't. Just a consensus of like, how many people actually well, believe well, what's that? What's really these sad days? is uh, if you read uh, the original paper that Larry Page wrote on the search engine, which was um, initially called Backrub, and you can still find it. Stanford is still publishing, uh, has still published it because Stanford actually owns the original algorithm. Google just has a lifetime license. Um, but it actually refers to the correct setup of this. So the, the reference there is that of a reference system. So like you, you would write a, a scientific paper and you start referencing those people who um, built on this particular bef uh, topic beforehand, and that's how you would organize information. That has never come to pass. So we should just do that as a starting point, as far as I'm concerned, and that should be the World Wide Web, and then any sh anything that has commercial intent needs to be put to the fringes and um, should be accordingly, quote-unquote, voted down or put on its right level, which uh, originally that was the intent of the dot-com domain, right, commercial. So that's where it should be. But so that's, to me, kind of if you will, the root of all evil. It always starts with the sp spread of propaganda and false information that you can um, keep these type of beliefs and uh, systems that are not beneficial, beneficiary to the uh, public at large in place. 
again, comes down to advertising doesn't make your or my life a better place. So why do we allow this in what's probably the most useful utility for humanity, the World Wide Web? Why do we allow it to, um, right. um, uh, as an overriding purpose, to have a couple of companies take advantage of that? It's a commons, right? It should not be possible. And uh, the entities that are uh, misusing it for that purpose should be held accountable. I mean, very simple example. Um, supposedly, there's an hour of Facebook um, surfing going on for every uh, Facebook user in the United States on a daily basis. And typically, that's between nine to five. So what does that tell you? So that's probably 100 million hours a day that we are subtracting from GDP since I would argue that's not making GDP any better, right? So we are, we are actively letting productiv productivity being destroyed by these data brokers and attention merchants. Yeah. Right, that, being siphoned that, away. That Absolutely. goes unpunished right now, right? Why, why should this go unpunished? Yeah. If, if I'm polluting the environment, I'm being held accountable, hopefully, and need to clean it up. So why should that not be the case for our digital environment? Well, that seems to be up for debate, too. So <laughs> I'd like to see a lot more accountability around that as well. But Jeremy, you spend a lot of time uh, you know, in the, in the digital world. What are your thoughts here? I would absolutely agree with a lot of what Christian's saying. I mean, you know, people need to be held accountable. Obviously, there's just the, the big bad wolf, which is the likes of the Facebooks and the Googles of the world, right? Um, you know, whether you're, and I think we talked about this on a previous episode, whether you opt out or not, it doesn't really matter. They're still tracking you. They're still collecting data, whether it's for the NSA or anybody else. Um, it's there, right? So I guess the bigger question, Christian, is how can blockchain solve a lot of this, right? We see different types of companies, new organizations coming together, whether they're, you know, trying to attack a new type of search engine or a new type of, you know, Yelp, which obviously you have a ton of experience in. I mean, like, what are you seeing out there? You speak to a lot of companies, you speak all over the place on panels and, and stuff like that. I mean, like, what are you seeing and where are the players, you know, attacking this and trying to disrupt yeah. what is so commonplace and what we see today centers around this topic of identity and uh, we spent uh, probably more than a year now looking at different solutions in that quote-unquote identity space i spent four days at a conference in las vegas where everybody that has a hand in that topic was speaking and finally after a year we made one allocation in that space which has more to do with biometrics and being able to protect uh, your visual identity your gait and uh, your facial recognition, and there's initially going to be implementations and travel that are being built on that. But it's a super hard topic to understand. And the one thing that I keep telling people that stood out to me at this identity conference is that everybody had a different idea of what identity is. And um, when I tell you mine, this is mostly with the spirit of I'm still looking for peer review on that and trying to define this more nuanced. I think a couple of things are definitely wrong, i.e. this idea of digital identity is, is utterly misguided. Um, and also this idea of financial inclusion or what I call fiat identity, fiat identity, the idea that the government is giving you identity by giving you a passport. I think all of these ideas are utterly misguided. So what I'm coming back to when I think about this topic, and I've been thinking about it for a long time now, is 
my identity is really only the things that I can control. What can I control? Uh, mostly my time and attention. So what, what I mean by that is like your house uh, outside of like having a title to it and being able to sell it owns you more than you own it, right? If you perish tomorrow, the house is still going to be there. Someone else is going to move in. And uh, at that point in time, you don't care. At the same point in time, if I had a copy of your quote-unquote digital identity that I obtained on some nefarious dark market because uh, Experian, Equifax, or any of the other nefarious data brokers let it slip through the cracks, and someone created a copy of my digital identity, and I never heard about it. Someone created a, a credit card in some third world nations and is happily spending on that with my digital identity, but it never comes to my attention and never hits any of the channels that I'm listening to, my credit report and so forth. Do I really care? I probably don't, right? So the point there being is um, there's a couple of things that we need to understand in that space to A, um, it's it's binary in the sense of there's a lot of people that uh, really don't have rights to their identity in any way right now. So all the undocumented people, quote unquote, and they're honestly probably better off than the ones that are documented. Because if again, if you, if you've been in the United States for any length of time, then the chances that your identity, quote unquote, is going to be stolen is about three hundred percent at this point in time. Uh, Equifax, as we all know, lost every single data that they ever owned and you can buy this for pennies on the dark markets and create new identities with with your face and your mother's maiden name and social security number which is at the core of all of most of these identity hacks and so forth and so from that perspective the needs are very different so the needs for someone who never had a passport never had a social security number is different from someone who had all these tools and had them copied over and over again so in my opinion we need to develop a systems that clean up mm. after uh, those companies that let this data out in the wild and slip and then we need to address um, the people that are undocumented in a more thoughtful manner than we addressed the previous ones so this comes all back to me in my mind to my time and attention so whatever i can control at the end of the day i should have rights to and should be able to punish people who infringe on that meaning also right so because at the end of, i mean uh, if, if this is your last day on earth and you have an hour to spend, you're not spending it cleaning up your digital identity. You don't care if someone has another credit card in your name and so forth. But if if you make me spend time on that, that's really what you're stealing from me, right? You're stealing my time. You're stealing my attention. So, Christian, I, I kind of want to explore like another layer of that. I mean, from a from an infrastructure standpoint, um, it, okay, if you think about it from a term of like Google claiming, like if you're a business, you claim your business to ensure that your data is correct out there. And if you were to take that a step further and put that on the blockchain, you could then claim your data and then create permissions around who is able to see it. And anyone that wants your data, like a Google, a Facebook, a Macy's, a Target, any Walmart, if they want your data, they need to compensate you for that. You should be rewarded for being in these tokenized economies. And that was kind of the point I was getting to before is like, we have rights that we don't even know about because we're 
unfortunately a little brainwashed into thinking the way things are is the way things has to be. And it doesn't. And I think you're a revolutionary person to really push those boundaries. Well, I mean, I come from a European context. So a lot of uh, things that data brokers can do here, that they were never possible where I'm from. Like um, when I first heard that experience collecting data on me and selling that, that would be illegal where I'm from. And I, for a brief period of time after law school, I taught uh, data privacy rights. They're way more stringent and I assume you guys are familiar with what the GDPR is now enforcing on an even more yep. stringent basis. And California is looking to mostly copy a lot of these ideas that are in GDPR. But uh, th that still doesn't mean that the technology in is in place for that. And um, we saw a lot of these ideas that suggested that people should be compensated for using their data. Um, and as far as we can tell, none of those ideas have any traction. Because at the end of the day, you need to figure out what, what's the incentive mechanism here, right? And most of the time, the incentives aren't big enough for people to actually wanting to do that. So you need to find something that's way more nuanced. I don't see any business model working on that idea that, hey, whenever uh, someone wants to show me an ad, then I should make a penny out of that. I, I think I would entirely opt, opt out of that and my assumption would be that most people uh, with a reasonable standard of living would also not be interested in getting a penny for a, a minute of their attention, right? right. So... Right. And I don't, I don't mean that in terms of like, I, I, so I think it's going to come from disruption. I think that tokenized economies are going to evolve on their own merit and those economies will offer more and more features and ads will pivot over to that away from, like, I think it's just going to be a Darwinian landscape unfolding. I, I don't think that anyone can spin up a business to be like, you can get one penny for every time you, you could. I mean, I'm sure, Hey, I hope somebody does invent that. I just don't have time to crack that nut right now. Yeah, I would say from my perspective, it's it's one of those things to where I agree with you, Christian. Um, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily make sense from a business perspective to open something up to say if I control my information and I and I give access to companies to access certain pieces of information that I'm going to get a penny each. How I actually foresee it playing out is very different. Which is it's just empowering people to limit the data in which companies can see, right? Um, I think that's what it's going to be. And I think that in itself is a strong enough value proposition to create a business around, not to say that it could be incentivized in any way through the creation of like tokens and, and, you know, giving people tokens every time they share something. I think that will make sense from the influencer community, because if you think about it from the company's perspective, they're only going to want to compensate people that it's worth compensating them for. So people that want to do a plug for that particular brand. So if I'm an influencer and I have, you know, 5 million viewers or 5 million and followers, obviously it makes sense from a branding perspective to be able to compensate that person just like today. I think it'll just be in a new form. I think it's going to be through some sort of token. But let's get back to something that's really interesting outside of this topic because talking about tokens and digital assets, digital securities, there's so many different names that are thrown around. And I think this is something that you said earlier. You said, you know, something about cryptocurrency and just the naming convention of cryptocurrency doesn't necessarily, not necessarily make sense, but not something that um, should be the word that we're using to describe what is these digital assets. Now, you said also, and I happen to agree with this, that we don't need hundreds if upon thousands. I think there might be over 3,000 different cryptocurrencies in today's market. We obviously don't need access to all of these 
a lot of these are scams, we all know. And I think you were saying something that's slightly different than me, which is I think that there's probably going to be anywhere between 20 and 50 cryptos uh, or digital assets ultimately that people are going to utilize because these strong companies like Facebook and Amazon are adopting these types of technologies. But when you talk about there's only the need for one or two, right? What about all the other projects out there, yeah. right? What about the projects like you have Bitcoin, which is obviously the grandfather, but now let's get into like the Ethereum's of the world. Let's get into the Neos of the world. I mean, we're talking about payments. Look at, let's get into Civic, right? And, and talking about the security and, and owning your own identity, right? Let's get into those and, and, and explain why there's not really a point to have a digital asset tied to those organizations sure let me start with some basic definitions because oftentimes the term token is misused so the way token needs to be understood in the blockchain context as uh, the peer-to-peer -peer instrument so what i mean by that specifically is the most interesting concept that the bitcoin white paper introduced outside of the um, decentralized autonomous organization is that of a digital bearer instrument so as in i can give you something in a digital form that you then own and I don't own anymore. I mean, the, the most visible example for the listener in this context would be your printed dollar bills, right? So you hand it over and at this moment in time, the transaction is settled. So this is now possible on the digital level. And so this is the function that a token fulfills in the blockchain context, which for most systems is actually not possible. What I mean by that. So I can tokenize, quote unquote, an MP3 file mp4 file because i can send it to you in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion and the moment you receive it the transaction is settled with a lot of other um, implementations that's not possible so if you're coming from a european context and uh, you pass the first semester in law school you, you get uh, um, this particular concept uh, real quick because there are certain um, rights that require other people to do something and or external entities to record something so your typical example would be your house so a house can be owned by one person, can be possessed by another, can be managed by a third and so forth, right? So if you can combine all these elements in one um, smart contract, then you can call it a token. Otherwise, you can't. So what I mean uh, by that, to make it more visible for people who throw the term, let's call it security token around, there can only be security tokens if and when you have a security token pro a token protocol on public mainnet and you solve identity. Why is that? Because you need to check all the prerequisites of that particular legal instrument on the public mainnet to see whether or not this can be sold to people from certain nations if this has certain vesting rights and so forth. And at the same point in time, I need to check this on that identity, right? So to match it, it's a key lock system. So whenever people say that, that they build a, a quote-unquote security token, but that you, uh, that you have to, to check for those prerequisites on some sidechain read database, read data silo that's being maintained but which were by what's most likely a startup, I would not call that a token and would not recommend that anybody is doing that because from an investor's perspective, that's a huge single point of failure. Right? You don't ever want to do that. So, But what I'm really interested in is that people actually build tokens from those um, software implementations that could actually facilitate this. The most obvious one is why don't we build a decentralized iTunes? Because I can build a token protocol for an MP3 file. And that should happen. That should happen yesterday. Same for an MP4 file. 
Obviously, you can't do this with your house, right? Tokenizing a house is just using the word token as a metaphor, as a figure of speech, which is not very useful if you're talking about a technology. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. Um, I, and I think that's a good point of clarification. So to, to my understanding, what you're trying to say is, is that as it relates to cryptocurrencies or digital currencies, there's really only the need for one or two right. versus tokens, which well, is completely different. You can tokenize, and, and maybe you do or don't believe this, but I believe that we have a firm belief that a lot of assets, if not all assets, eventually will be tokenized. So there is going to be inherently the need for tokens. We're already seeing it happen with traditional stocks. We're seeing it happen with gold. We have Thaleron, which is doing it with silver. I mean, so am I on the right page in terms of what you're saying is going to be the ultimate future? No, so the, the easiest way to understand this, if you need visuals for that, is you need to know whether or not you're building a digital vending machine or you're building the token. Most of the time, you will build a digital vending machine. That's why I call it RegTech, Regulation Technologies, because most of those transfer mechanisms, you can't build into the instrument, into that digital bearer instrument itself. It requires you to have a digital vending machine to put it through, as in I need the government's approval to move a deed or I need um, a lender's approval to move the car title or whatever you have. But as soon uh, as you cannot implement this into the token itself, you will need this digital vending machine. And the other point to that is, um, unfortunately, we have been applying this term cryptocurrency to all these digital assets. Most of them never had the intention, obviously, of being currency. Specifically, Ether is mostly um, there to protect this particular computer, Ethereum, this, this unstoppable word computer, if you will, from being DDoS. It's a protective mechanism on the network. It, it never had this intention of being a currency, and neither do most of those other implementations. Most of them just haven't been well thought through, unfortunately. Some of them are assets of sorts, but most of them are, are really not needed at this particular point in time. What's needed is that we complete the protocols that we can build, and that's particularly true for any quote-unquote systems of money, which is the most simple explanation for a currency. And there again, we just need the protocol level and whatever you want to use to understand the transfer of value, that's what you will see in your um, application, right? So to that extent, um, what makes it really easy to understand if you think of um, SIP, of the voice of IP protocol that we're using uh, today, like it doesn't do you much good unless you have a client. If you have a WhatsApp or Skype and so forth, you can use it, right? And, and the value will accrue to Skype or WhatsApp or whatever client implementation that there, there is, right? So you don't need to pay for, for SIP, right? And so you don't need to pay for the protocol. And you don't need to um, pay for the digital bearer instrument in that sense. You pay for the application. Christian, I have a, a question around reg tech. So when we spoke at the on-chain conference and uh, uh, Hester Pierce joined us, you had quite a bit to say uh, in terms of what I will call a fast forward button of how the SEC might apply this right. and how we might be able to get clarity on that. Can you share your views on that with the rest of the world? Because I thought it was really, really smart and I think it's something that everyone needs to hear. 
Uh, yeah, maybe uh, a, fr- a few prerequisites. So, A, um, <laughs> Fair enough. A, I, I think it's a huge mistake in uh, wording when whenever uh, lawyers and also regulators open their mouths, they, they say something to the extent of the SEC will regulate blockchain, will regulate um, tokens, will regulate ICOs, will regulate any type of things that they actually don't get the right to regulate. What do I mean by that? Any regulator obviously only gets to regulate what? Their citizens. So they're legal citizens and they're natural citizens. That's all they get to do. So if they would formulate this correctly, they would say, hey, uh, the SEC would like to limit the rights of U.S. citizens to buy these instruments. That has a very different response than if you say, hey, we're going to protect you from scams, right? Because, I mean, this argument has been made many, many times. Obviously, you can just go to Vegas and spend any amount of money on on any type of stupid gambling approach. Um, but you can't do the same thing when you think this is an investment instrument. And that's obviously utterly misguided. But then even on a higher level, I would say that there is no place for any of the regulators to get engaged with this technology at all. Because um, whenever someone says, well, this is gonna needs to be uh, comply with X Y Z. My typical response to that is, well, does it also have to comply with Sharia law? Will you be able to tr- trade it on the Sabbath? Because once you do that, well, you probably can do very little of any technology once you apply every regulation that you could possibly apply. But the larger point there is th- this technology and this paradigm is obviously global. It doesn't um, comply with any nation state's ideas of what it should or should not be doing. So from that perspective, it's a failed attempt to even open your mouth and say, well, we're going to start regulating this because at the end of the day, the net effect at best is that that people that supporting this technology will find a different jurisdiction. So to that extent, all you might be doing some form of regulatory arbitrage and then maybe a a few suckers will fall for that idea that they need to stay within those boundaries and comply with these particular type of regulations but in my mind why should you Um, and we see the companies that do this successfully like Binance and we see the companies that do this unsuccessfully and then they get something that's called a non-action letter which basically just said well if you're not doing all these things if your token acts like uh, the US dollar then we won't regulate it's like well that's not very helpful to anybody and Hester said this when, when I talked to her at the conference right so to, to the extent uh, that I have conversations with regulators, um, you heard my questions, right? It's like, why are you even saying anything? I'm not even convinced um, that this should be constitutional, that they even have an opinion on this because it's technology. Your opinion on technology is not not called for, right? Yeah, but Christian, let me let me uh, you know look at it from the other side, right? I totally agree with what you're saying, actually. But on the other side, obviously, the job of the SEC in the United States is to protect investors. And as we know, with Bitcoin's price getting out of hand with all this speculation in 2017, 2018, there's a lot of people that lost a hell of a lot of money. And it's just because they went into things blindly. Look, I get the notion that people should be accountable and people should do their own research. And you know, we could argue that it's their fault um, because they didn't do their due diligence and they were just using emotion. Um, but on that side of the coin, that also is their job to make sure that people are protected 
from you know the scams out there, which people got duped many many times with these ICOs. So you know, looking at it from that perspective, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, that topic has been entirely overblown because um, I mean we have our own data science team here so we, we do an actual analysis on capital allocations to certain projects and so forth so once you do that you'll find out where most of the money came from um, what the background of most of those people in that space was I mean I, I've talked about this many many times about, about uh, over the last couple of years um, but very simple example uh, if you take the quote-unquote ICO craze it was super hard to um, participate in an ICO, if you remember, right? So you had to buy, typically buy Ether, then register yourself. Then shortly after the SEC first opened their mouths, everybody started to do KYC and so forth. So uh, to say that mom and pop, which um, some of those uh, people in the public said got into the action is utterly misguided. Most of the money that was applied to the space came actually from professional allocators and the rest came from pretty sophisticated uh, technologists in that space, mostly from people who were miners before, had been playing in the space before. So that it, it, obviously there will be people that got quote-unquote scammed and they shouldn't have been participating. I view this whole ICO and this whole cryptocurrency um, game and this whole um, crypto exchange system at this particular moment in time really mostly as a multi-massive online player game. And I think a lot of people that operate in that space and that are sophisticated allocators view it very much the same because there's very little direct relationship to anything in the real world right now between any of those tokens that are listed. And it doesn't take a genius to realize that. Anybody who read any of these white papers or read any of the proposals could see, well, uh, this is very much pie in the sky and something that might exist in the future. Some of them, that seems very interesting. But that's very much the same in, in any startup environment and maybe much more so in this particular case. But again, this is from an allocator's perspective, not an unusual scenario and actually a wanted scenario. And remember, this is a tiny, tiny, tiny space um, that we operate in at this particular moment in time. If you're looking around what the stock market is doing or what FX trading is doing, people that get harmed on those levels every single day, those are the ones that the SEC should be concerned about, not the few players that spend a, a few ether here and there on these particular projects. Again, it takes a lot of sophistication to even participate in that system. It takes no sophistication to go into a Vegas casino and takes no sophistication to call up any broker. But I would argue you shouldn't be doing that, specifically not the stock market, because, as you know, I mean, the, the stock market right now, most of the <laughs> right. stocks are being traded in nanoseconds. I mean, to me, I have this visual in my head where I'm entering a, a robot war, right, where you've seen those robots that um, trash each other with all sorts of... <laughs> <laughs> That was yeah. a good show. And, and so to, to me, that's the same if as a human you enter the bot game on a high-frequency market, 
right? And that's the majority of how t- stocks are being traded these days. So, uh, in my mind, that's what the SEC should be concerned about. That that's a problem. Um, that's several orders of magnitude bigger than what they uh, spend any amount of time on, which they should be spending no amount of time on. And let alone what banks are allowed to do these days. A lot of the interests that are being charged um, here in the United States, that would be called usury where I'm from. I was shocked when I saw those numbers that people are being charged for interest on their credit cards. And uh, needless to say, those systems are all gamified as well. Right, the, that's what banks do on a daily basis. Right, the, they create systems that keep people in debt because that's how they make their money. They don't make money from having from you having a few thousand dollars in your account having no debt. Right, so that's a problem that needs to be addressed. So the average U.S. citizen now is several ten thousands of dollars in debt. That that's not a sustainable scenario. Right, they, a lot of people coming out of. Um, college or buying a house, they will never be able to pay off these loans in their lifetime the the way they're being allowed to be structured right now. And so that's what regulators uh, should spend their time uh, mitigating. But to me, it seems pretty obvious where the motivation is coming from to put any amount of time into the uh, blockchain space or cryptocurrency space, right? I mean, that that's the result of lobbying. That's not the result of true concerns for the public's well-being. So I, I, I'd like to see, I mean, I'd like to see a list of people that got scammed that said, hey, I'm, I'm a regular mom. I participated in that. I said, show me that list of people and how much they lost. Oh, so, and then let's put that list right up against everyone who lost everything yes. in 2008 and the things exactly. that continue to happen and the $40 yeah. trillion. Dollars. Like, yeah, don't get me started. I got lots of opinions about that one. Yeah, so I I have huge questions about the mandate and the due diligence that regulators did for that space that would justify not even any kind of action, but let alone even talking about it. I I think to talk about is actually harming our economy at this point in time, right? Because you saw the, the amount of projects that were legitimate projects that just decided, okay, it's not worth letting U.S. investors or U.S. persons in general participate in this particular project because the regulatory uncertainty just doesn't bet us uh, does, doesn't make it interesting for yeah, us to and they, they're them. scared honestly there's an entrepreneurial yes. vision that like is is happening and they're like well we can't do it in the US they're going abroad and they right. don't want to be you know punished for something that I mean sorry Hester that the SEC can't understand and doesn't understand right. this landscape yeah, and, and that's the other part about this. Is, so we, at the end of the day, we're talking about software here, and we're talking specifically about open source software for the most part, right? That's what um, it's at the heart of what blockchain um, paradigms are built on, open source software. So how often does open source software change constantly, right? So whenever the regulators come up with some form of framework, and that's probably years in the future, if at all, it's not going to be interesting to that particular implementation at that particular point in time. I mean, uh, where I'm from, we use a fairly scientific approach even 
um, to regulation to where everything is somewhat mathematical and you can figure things out. We don't use anecdotes of orange grove farmers uh, to figure out if something is an investment contract. That that seemed very strange to me. And specifically, if you realize, I think that particular orange grove farmer case happened in 1946 when um, there wasn't any form of digital banking and so forth. So, so that comes back to... Yeah, we we kind of need uh, to re-baseline at this point. Like uh, as a project yeah. manager, you have your phase one, your phase two, your phase three, and you re-baseline each time. Yeah. And so that comes back to uh, like the indoctrination of people and their idea of what is money. So the, the definition literally goes back to a British economist that came up with that definition the same year that Graham Bell was awarded the patent for the phone. So if we use that same definition, then a phone needs to be something that's tethered to a wall and has a rotary dial and so forth. And obviously we don't do this for phones, but at the same point in time, we do this for money. Obviously the um, the exchange mechanism for money has been digital for more than 90% of all currencies for decades. So that topic is set. We don't have to argue about this. And also, there's this confusion about that the US dollar is money. The US dollar is not money. It hasn't been since 1971, right? It's just money in name. It's the, They should have just come up with a different name for it at this particular moment in time, right? If Once you removed its commodity backing and just made it money by decree, it wasn't really money. So if you, we have been using um, distributed ledger technology since this particular point in time because if you're looking into your bank account, it shows you two things, either the money that you owe the bank or the um, money that the bank owes you. It's a distributed ledger. So what blockchain does, it disrupts distributed ledger technology, which is the other rap that I always have with people that are equating one for the other. It's not the same thing. And again, it's not money what you're seeing, right? So for all those people that, that feel that, you know, there's other solutions or solutions that are already in place. I mean, we've talked to many of them, right? People, when we, when we started our company, Coin Genius, we started doing some recruiting. Uh, there was a lot of people that we faced that truly and firmly feel that DLT technology and other types of technologies that exist, even databases, are just as good and adequate of a solution. So I know that you disagree with that completely. So dive yeah. into that a little bit further and tell people why it's so different and why blockchain is so revolutionary comparatively? Well, DRTs are the current problem, right? Because they let, I mean, most money, what we consider money in our indoctrination, thus far is being created by banks, right? So whenever you give a bank $10, they can give someone else $90, they don't pay you anything, and the $90 gets, um, has an interest rate of 10, uh, 10% or something else, right? Um, so those are all distributed ledgers because whenever uh, you need to send me money, they need to align your ledger with my ledger and take the $10 off here and put it on there. And for some reason, that then takes 24 hours, right? Or well, if you're lucky. And uh, the, the real benefit, again, always comes back to once you create a digital bearer instrument, settlement is as fast as the blockchain entry. That's why also always the comparison of, hey, Bitcoin can only do four transactions per second. That's irrelevant. I mean, that doesn't compare to the Visa network. Of course it doesn't compare because the Visa network has never settled anything in 10 minutes, will never. And it's not in their interest, right? It's not in the interest of those 
entities that maintain um, distributed ledger technologies because they make a tremendous amount of money on the quote-unquote float, the money that disappears from your account and doesn't show up in my account until 48 hours or if you're in another country a week later. Where does it go? Does it take Correct. a vacation? Right? So, <laughs> yeah, <it's>, uh, <laughs> well, so, I'll tell you, some of it goes digitally across time zones to be able to just get an advantage from an algo trade. And you're right, it doesn't settle. It happens in banks all the time. And when they don't settle and then you incur a charge and then they go, oh, well, now we're going to charge you another $35. No, that was you guys not having your paperwork together, right. not me. There's a right. big there's a big difference there. And I right. think that the, uh, the technical challenge of being able to have lots of transactions per second is just that. It's a technical challenge. We are already creating solutions for that. I see right. it in the industry with, with Exablades. I see it with crazy cutting edge technology to process huge, huge exponential amounts of data, way bigger than what we have today, because that's where the world is going. And that's what we need to be pre prepared for. Yeah. And, and the thing is, you can have it um, settled as as quick and as slow as you want to. That's the interesting part because a lot of times people make it sort of sound binary. It's either one or the other. It's not. I mean, blockchain-based solutions just let you allow to set whatever um, frequency you want, i.e., do I want 15 people to confirm this transaction? Sometimes you would want that. You're transferring $100 million. Well, it should take a little time, right? I don't want this to settle in 10 minutes. I, I want 15 people to look at this. If I'm buying a Coke, then, well, I, I don't need to, for my, that particular transaction to clear. It doesn't matter, right? So, worst case, I'm a dollar out or something like that, right? So, again, it, the right tool for... Um, the right job here right and so most of the time yeah you don't necessarily want to use the main net on bitcoin for anything and some of this will be solved on layer two and some of them will have a layer zero um, attached to that but yeah you're right uh, all of this is being addressed and then there's always this this unfair comparison well it takes so much energy if you're using proof of work that's all nonsense all of all of that at this point in time they're they're all urban myth that have been debunked many, many times, but they, they're being kept alive. Again, it comes down to reality doesn't have an advertising budget, right? So it's all yeah. it's it's all motivated reasoning or, or for the most part, and then sometimes people are just badly informed and don't don't spend the time on defining what they're actually talking about. Yeah, so I mean, we could talk about this for so long, and I think we're going to have to have you back on the show, um, specifically around something a little bit different that we're trying to do, which is, um, you know, just similar to what you see on like CNNBC. There's, you know, you get two people on and you debate a topic. Um, I'd love to have you back on to debate somebody as to like somebody who is a true believer that you know fiat currency is going nowhere and it is a solution and as value versus you know what um, we talked about today and, and what digital currency can do um, and, and why it's so different and why it's the future. Um, with that said, we're going to transition into the lightning round. Uh, so Christian, I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions, just, uh, you know, short, quick answers, uh, and then uh, just give us your honest opinion. Sure. So here we go. You ready? Anytime. All right, here we go. Which country, if any, do you think will adopt Bitcoin as their base currency first? None. Okay. Do you think companies like JP Morgan and Facebook coming into the space are good or actually bad for the industry? Good. Is Bitcoin ultimately a store of value or a peer-to-peer -peer payment system? Neither. 
oh, okay, then what's what it's going to be? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's mostly an example. Like to me, Bitcoin is mostly a symbol of free speech. So if you think about this, um, what is your ultimate form of expression? I mean, what what is a bigger expression than you opening your mouth? Is is you spending your money? And so to that extent, Bitcoin is. Uh, free, uh, not free money, but uh, it's independent money, right? Not created by any yeah. any government. So, to me, it's mostly a symbol, a, a really awesome symbol for the possibilities. Wow! All right, that's deep. I love that. All right, proof Lots of stake of or proof of work? <laughs> proof of stake or proof of work? Uh, the right tool for the right job. For the most part, um, proof of work. Okay. Uh, is Bitcoin right now, in your opinion, undervalued or overvalued? Undervalued or overvalued? Oh, difficult question because I really don't spend any time thinking about that. I mean, I'm, I'm happy when the price goes up. I think uh, that just shows that more people are interested in it. But I think uh, it's, it's better to be interested in it for what it stands for than what the value is. So to yeah, to, no, to, to okay. so to to that extent, I don't think it's um, the 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 value to me comes from yeah valuing it for its essence, not for its price. Because again, it comes down to if you to, it's almost backwards if you put a dollar price on that. Because uh, what, what's really inflationary is the dollar. Bitcoin is not inflationary, right? <laughs> Although it's always a, <laughs> the fallacy about like doll, like gold got cheaper. It's like uh, no, uh, an ounce of gold was an ounce of gold today. It will be an ounce of gold tomorrow. It will be an ounce of gold in China. It will be an ounce of gold in Europe. Right? So it's it's a it's yeah it's just wording it wrong. So to that extent, yeah, the, the dollar eventually will will go to zero, like every fiat currency in history has ever done. So. <laughs> Okay. No question. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. What would you say is blockchain's biggest weakness at this point? Biggest weakness of blockchain. Hmm. Uh, it, 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 there's no weakness in blockchain per se. I think the weakness comes in people not using the right definition. And there, a lot of times I see people jump to this term blockchain technology, which again is an old concept that predates the Bitcoin white paper by 10 years and everybody should read this and read it more than once, uh, which is just a certain type of encryption and hashing um, data in, in, in blocks, right? That's just blockchain technology. Blockchain, I think, is best understood as a paradigm that um, allows you to align interests of um, people that are participating in that particular network. And so to that extent, yeah, it's, it, it sounds somewhat esoteric, but has actual practical implementation that need to be understood because that's where the quote-unquote immutability is coming from. It's not from the technology, it's from the alignment of interests, right? Because uh, in order yep. to... To, to capture that amount of computing power or, or that amount of value in the network to then abuse it would just result in you losing most of your value. So that's not to your own interest. So that's a very clever implementation. And that is unfortunately little understood. That's why you hardly see it anywhere right now. And that needs to be better understood about that, that paradigm of what blockchain allows you to do. Okay. I love it. All right, cool. 
if there was one crypto um, or um, you know currency token, whatever you want to call it, that will eventually overtake Bitcoin as the leader in the space. And, and I know you might say that nothing, um, <laughs> but if there was one that had a shot or one project, what do you think it would be? Yeah, like like you indicated, my first answer would be nothing. Um, the the thing is, I, I think intermittently and for quite some time there will be a synthetic version of the quote unquote U.S. dollar that will overtake um, world trading of sorts. So what, what do I mean by that? I don't think the term stablecoin has any value because um, most of these quote unquote stablecoins are just pegged, and most of them are pegged to the U.S. dollar. And obviously, if you pack something to an inflationary currency, then that doesn't make it stable. But um, the larger point years if you look back in history that whenever fiat currencies failed and they all failed a lot of times what happened is and i think it's about a dozen times so far in history people would adopt the second um, the sec their secondary language of trade which oftentimes was the u.s dollar and in this case oftentimes the u.s dollar in printed form you can see this right now throughout the world so people start importing printed u.s dollars and use that as the medium of change exchange in in their daily dealings so one once you come up with the synthetic version of that, not, not a stable coin, but the synthetic version of that on the protocol level, that could be a universal language of trade that might be persistent. And we might just call it a US dollar, but it has actually nothing to do at this point in time with anything that any government and specifically not the US government could influence. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right, two more questions, and then we'll wrap up here. Uh, do you think an ETF getting approved in the U.S. is good or bad? It's good. Okay. And lastly, and by far the most important question, do you think Craig Wright is Satoshi Nakamoto? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hope not. <laughs> uh, like to end on a, uh, on a light note. Well, Christian, it is been such a pleasure to have you on blockchain versus this has been incredibly enlightening for i think both christina and i uh love to have you back once again but in the meantime uh how can people get a hold of you how can people find you or follow you um you know people that love the opinions and the thoughts that you presented today uh please don't follow me i'm incredibly paranoid but if you want to read anything <laughs> that i write i try to uh get an article out on forbes once uh, every month, maybe every other month. So there's a couple of my summaries. They're typically kind of summaries of the chapters of my book that I've been writing on for about 10 years by now. And I heard this really good quote from one of my favorite authors. He said, you get 10 years to write your first book, so and you only get one year to write your second. So I'm taking my time in my first. <laughs> um, and so, nice. But uh, part of how I'm trying to um, hold myself accountable is basically write a summary of a chapter that addresses one particular topic. So I, I wrote one on the concept of money over IP, one on the topic of um, what people think are security tokens, one on DAOs, and one on the concept of NFTs. And so they, they go into more nuances than we could talk about at this particular point on, on the podcast. But unfortunately, they are also, um, also limited to a thousand words. <laughs> which is a requirement of the publisher. And uh, the way uh, I write is uh, somewhat, let's call it scientific, to where I, I take my time to actually define the words that I'm using. And since this is a new science, if you will, new d discipline, um, you need to actually take the time, in my opinion, so you'll sometimes find 
uh, one paragraph justifying one word, which leaves very little for conclusions. But um, most of the time, I'll put these out with, in the spirit of peer review. That's really what I'm looking for. So that's why I said I don't want anybody to, to follow me necessarily, but I'd love any type of peer review because uh, I, I would never, ever claim that I have the right opinion on, on anything. They are just that. I mean... And there are strong opinions weekly held. So give me give me peer review of your better arguments. I would want to really hear them. <laughs> and, and would you say you're more active on like Twitter or LinkedIn, um, where you're yeah. active in the community having conversations? Yeah, I'm most active on LinkedIn. I tweet once. I don't know once or twice a month, maybe. But yeah, the only thing <laughs> I'm really active on uh, is LinkedIn because I uh, constantly like try to um, connect with people that are doing something interesting in that space again to, to share data. I also published a few things that weren't the right fit uh, for necessary Forbes to LinkedIn. Like my current thoughts on identity, they weren't really at a stage where I thought they, they should go into that magazine. So I published that on LinkedIn first for peer review to then refine my opinion. And then um, one, one thing that I uh, kind of use as as a guideline, is if I share more than a thousand connections with someone, then he probably is doing something interested in the space that I'm interested in. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good barometer there. Lastly, uh, Sustany Capital. I know you guys deploy assets to you know a few different companies, maybe a handful of companies. I know uh, a few of them from uh, some of our conversations. Um, but for those companies out there that are listening that might be doing something really interesting, uh, who should reach out? What type of profile of an organization and what maybe specific areas are you looking at? Just very quickly here. Yeah. So if you understand money over IP, if you're working in the remittance space, smart wallet systems, exchange technologies and so forth, um, I'd like to hear from you, ATMs, point of sale systems. Um, if you're doing anything in the rec tech space, so if you're not under the delusion that you're issuing security tokens, I want to hear from you. We are, um, as a disclosure, we are running 35 master nodes for Swarm Fund, which we think has an interesting approach to that topic that's actually decentralized. And then largely, if you're working in the identity space, we're looking at anything in identity at the moment. Uh, we'd also love to hear from you. I love it. I love it. So Christian, I mean, we know quite a few of the folks that are over with Sustany Capital, Blockchain BTM, and uh, a couple other really awesome projects that I, I love to see at the conferences and, and give a shout out to. Um, I would like to pivot back. We Before we wrap up here, I just want to say something that is near and dear to my heart. You call you went OG scientist and called for peer review. And you said, this is what I think I would like to turn it over to the world and have them examine it and give their feedback and actually reach a consensus. And that's something that, um, you know, is from a, from a scientist perspective, I feel should be more within our culture. I think it's definitely coming into blockchain because there's certain levels of engineering that you just can't push boundaries. So there's limits, but when it comes to the new society, of what we can build together. Um, I just really appreciate that your first gut reaction isn't, you know, take my opinion and, and, and repost it. It's look at it, examine it, think about it and consider it. So thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, this has been incredibly insightful and we can't wait to have you back again. Thank you guys. All right. Until next time. This has been a production of Blockchain Intelligence, LLC. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. 
The thoughts and opinions of Blockchain Versus and their guests are their own and should not be construed as professional advice of any kind. Before making any investment decisions, you should always do your own research and seek help from a professional. If you would like to get in touch with the Blockchain Versus podcast, please go to www.blockchainversus.com or email us at info at blockchainversus.com.